Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, a new podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. It's 2007. A 63-year-old man has died in London just a few hundred meters from Piccadilly Circus. Witnesses say he fell from a balcony on the fifth floor. But others believe something sinister was at play. Did he jump, or was he pushed? This is a question that authorities could not solve definitively at the time, and to this day, it remains unanswered. There's certainly a case to be made for murder. The man lying dead in the rose garden of his apartment building was well-connected, and by some accounts, he had made his fair share of enemies. He was a former arms dealer, a billionaire. He'd made his way through the inner circles of the Egyptian government. He was also a spy for its enemy, Israel. But did the lies and the secrecy end there? Did our subject die a traitor to his country, or did he pull off an even greater deception as a double agent? It's impossible to know what he was thinking, as the walls of a major artery carrying blood to his heart ruptured after he fell five stories. That day, he died with his secrets. Well, some of them. The man is Ashraf Marwan. This is his story, based on documented events and his own words. Why would anyone think I killed myself? Yes, I had some health problems, but that does not mean I wanted to take my own life. I didn't leave a note, but I did leave three phone messages for Aaron Bregman, the Israeli historian I was going to meet that day. Frantic messages. Hello? Hello? Please, please call me back. I'm the subject of your book. I was afraid. I needed to talk to somebody. I had a feeling someone was going to try and kill me. I even told my family nine days earlier... And what about the two mysterious men seen in my building that day? Yes, eyewitnesses say they looked Middle Eastern. But my story is not simple and straightforward. I'll tell you what happened that day. But for you to understand that, I have to take you to the beginning. Yes, he'll tell you his story. But keep this in mind. Ashraf Marwan was a man who carried with him many secrets throughout his life, and many believe he died holding on to them. I was always a proud Egyptian. I was born in Cairo, and when I was four years old, in 1948, we got a new neighbor. Israel declared its statehood, and for most of my life living back home, Egypt and Israel were fighting. If we weren't at war, we were on the verge of one. I would hear all about it from my father, who was a general in the Egyptian Republican Guard. 
I graduated from Cairo University when I was 21 with a degree in chemical engineering. Then like the rest of my countrymen, I was conscripted. It was around this time that I met Mona. She was 17 and we fell in love. And as it would turn out, my military career was much shorter than my father's. I had different ambitions. He certainly had ambitions. This Mona was Mona Abdel Nasser, the daughter of Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt at the time and a very powerful man in the region. And Abdel Nasser was suspicious. But who wouldn't be? Marwan seemingly came out of nowhere. He was a nobody. And if he weren't the son of a general, he would have no chance with Abdel Nasser's daughter. Was he really in love with Mona, or was he in love with the idea of being the president's son-in-law? Mona's father tried to talk her out of our getting married, but she insisted. And the next year, we became husband and wife. I was well aware the president saw me as an opportunist, but Mona and I were truly in love. Look, we were married for 40 years. It would have been longer if I hadn't fallen to my death. Those first few years were exciting. I went from a university student to being part of the most powerful family in Egypt. And with that came new challenges. I began working in the president's office. You'd think that would be a huge step up, that I'd be given big responsibilities and an increase in status, but you'd be wrong. It was not all what I thought it would be. I was given a junior position. I was often overlooked and ignored, never given an opportunity to show my potential. I believe Abdel Nasser just had me there to keep an eye on me. How humiliating. I wanted to be a man of influence, a decision maker, but the circle of trust inside the government was small, and I didn't fit. So I decided to explore other opportunities. Mona and I, along with our new baby boy, moved to London, and I went back to school. That's not exactly all he did in London. From the look of the bills being sent back to Egypt for his in-laws to pay, the young Marwan family was enjoying a lavish lifestyle in the UK, with Marwan partying, hitting the clubs, and dining at high-end restaurants. Egypt's President Abdel Nasser was a humble man, and it didn't look good to have his family spending all this money when his country had just suffered a terrible loss. Yes, the Six-Day War in 1967 was not good for Egypt. Israel had taken the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the Sinai Peninsula and Gaza Strip from Egypt. We were humiliated. Did I understand why I was told to come back to Cairo? Yes. Did I want to? Not at all. But in 1970, something shocking happened. Gamal Abdel Nasser died. My life as the son-in-law of the president evaporated. And if, as Nasha suspected, I got married for status, well, that status was now gone. But I wouldn't let my future die with him. There would be a new president, and I would make myself indispensable to him. That man turned out to be Anwar Sadat, 
and with him, my future was looking bright. I figured President Sadat liked having me around to show he had the support of the old guard. But the truth is, he did more for me than my father-in-law ever did. I swore loyalty to Sadat, and in 1971, I finally got the position of power I'd been yearning for, and frankly, deserved. I became one of his close advisors. I was only 27, and my new status made me hungry for more. I suppose my speciality was foreign relations. After the Six-Day War, we were at our lowest as a country. In order to have a chance to take back the Sinai Peninsula, we needed to rebuild our military. And in order to do that, we needed to strengthen our relationships with our Arab neighbors. I acted as an envoy to Arab countries in the mid to late 70s. Sadat sent me to meet leaders in Libya and Saudi Arabia. I built friendships with those countries to see if they'd help us take back Sinai from Israel. You've always been such a good friend to Egypt. We're hoping we can get your support with an upcoming operation in the Sinai Peninsula. Then there was the committee to modernize our military arsenal. Sadat put me in charge of that, and I thrived. I made deals with our friends to get some military support, including the Mirage 5 fighter planes from France. Well, actually, France wouldn't sell them to us, so I got Libya to buy them from France, and they would supply them to us instead. It's sort of like if you're too young to buy a six-pack of beer and you ask an older friend to buy it for you, but with multi-million dollar fighter jets. Evidently, Marwan's new role under the new president was feeding his ego. But what about Egypt itself? The country wanted to take the Sinai Peninsula back, and they were getting close to achieving it. Perhaps Marwan's weapons deals were one of the driving forces behind that. We were preparing for war. And what we needed the most were missiles and jets from the Soviet Union. But those were delayed. So we had to wait. But Sadat was growing impatient. And then, he made his move. In 1973, Egypt, along with Syrian forces, waged war on Israel on two fronts. On October 6th, we crossed the Suez Canal and headed for Sinai. We secured our positions and were ready for Israel's inevitable counterattack. We fired at them with every weapon we had. And on October 13th, the last of Israel's Barlev line of fortresses along the eastern coast of the Suez Canal surrendered to the 43rd Battalion of Egyptian commandos. Even without the full arsenal we wanted, we would go on to win. Sadat had said he was willing to lose a million men to take back Sinai. Thousands were killed, and that's never cause for celebration. But it was for the glory of Egypt. But what many people at the time didn't realize is that it almost didn't happen like that. There was something that nearly cost us the war. A traitor. It turns out our government had been infiltrated by the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency. They had an agent high in our ranks who had tipped them off about the attack. But he wouldn't know anything about that, would he? Nevertheless, we won. Actually, both the Arabs and Israel claimed victory. But Egypt didn't take back the Sinai Peninsula until a peace treaty took effect six years later. The victory was a defining moment for Egypt and President Sadat. It erased the humiliation of losing the Sinai Peninsula to Israel when my father-in-law was in power. After the war, 
Sadat appointed me his foreign relations secretary. My career was moving forward. I was well on my way to becoming foreign minister. But I wasn't sure that was the right path for me. The funny thing about my position in the presidential office is that it allowed me to discover other opportunities beyond the office. In 1975, I traveled with Vice President Hosni Mubarak to Paris on an arms deal to buy French missiles. We also wanted France's help in setting up our own arms industry. This was my first real taste of global arms dealing. Well, a missile defense system is one thing, but we may need something a little more tactical. And I liked it. Powerful men deciding the fates of nations. This is where I wanted to be, but not as a government representative. I discovered there was a lot more money to be made as an arms dealer in the private sector. So I became the chairman of the newly created Arab Organization for Industrialization, which oversaw the Arab defense industry. Perhaps. Or maybe by placing him in a new office, Sadat was distancing himself from Marwan. He was living it up, enjoying meals and wine in high-end restaurants, and spending every chance he could gambling in casinos. This is not how someone close to the president should be behaving. It didn't look right. And that's not all. During this time, he was amassing a tremendous amount of personal wealth. Nobody knows exactly where it came from, possibly through the people he met while in his position making arms deals. People like Kamal Adham, brother-in-law of Saudi's King Faisal, the size and source of his fortune were a mystery. Either way, Egypt's President Sadat knew he couldn't have Marwan as a member of his staff anymore. Not many government officials amass this kind of wealth. Not through legitimate means, anyway. I did quite well. And why not? Why should a man with my skills and connections not profit from those skills and connections? My work was always in service of Egypt. President Sadat even rewarded me with a medal. In a way, my own trajectory mirrored that of Egypt. When I joined Sadat before the October War, Egypt was going through troubled times. When I left, we were in a much better position. And so was I. Let's just say I made some good investments. Those investments included a couple of soccer stadiums and the Chelsea Football Club as well as significant amounts of real estate in London. He lived in Cairo, but owned properties in England, France, Spain, and the US. But after a few years, it was time to get out of Egypt. It was October 6th, 1981, the eighth anniversary of our attack on Israel. Tanks were rolling in the street, fighter jets in the sky, Thousands of people were there to celebrate, and news cameras were capturing it. It was a wonderful celebration of the October War, until something unexpected happened. The parade had a military convoy, tanks and trucks passing by in the street to honor President Sadat. And then one vehicle stopped. First Lieutenant Khalid al-Islambouli stopped his car in front of Sadat's podium. He approached the president, presumably to pay tribute, Instead, he threw grenades. And then he and his men started firing at Sadat in front of thousands of people. 
they assassinated our president that day. The man who gave me the opportunity to succeed was gone. My heart broke for President Sadat and for all of Egypt. Since I was no longer a member of Sadat's staff, I wasn't there that day. Soon after that, my family and I moved to London permanently. There was no place for us in Egypt anymore. I became a businessman. I suppose I always had been, but now I was out of the business of government. I stayed under the radar, generally, but not always. You may have heard about this. There was one time, along with my friend Tiny Rowland, I tried to take over the parent company of the Harrods department store from the Al-Fayed family. That made some waves. If you don't know that name, Mohammed Al-Fayed is another Egyptian billionaire. His son Dodi Al-Fayed dated Princess Diana and was killed in the same car accident as her in 1997. These were the types of circles our humble Marwan was running in. But generally I led a quiet, comfortable life with my family. That was before 2002. That's when I received an unexpected book in the mail. It was not a bestseller. It was not written by a famous author. It was very unlikely that anybody at all would read it. But I did. And it threw my life into chaos. The book was called The History of Israel. In it, the author Aaron Bregman claimed that in 1969, the Israeli intelligence agency, Mossad, recruited a high-ranking member of the Egyptian government as a spy. This agent was known as the Angel. It went into great detail about how this invaluable spy fed Israel intelligence about Egypt's political maneuvers and war plans. They paid the spy fifty to $100,000 for every meeting, and those meetings sometimes happened once or twice a month. With every word, my stomach dropped. My mouth became dry. I broke out in a sweat. Because, you see, the author said that the spy was me. The most intriguing detail was a claim that two days before the October War, on October 4th, 1973, I contacted the head of Mossad, Zvi Zamir, to warn him about the upcoming attack on the evening of October 6th. These claims that Bregman made in his book are really quite serious. They're beyond serious. These are the kinds of claims that could get Marwan killed. If they're true, he could be executed for treason, or Egyptian intelligence could hunt him down and kill him themselves. The other thing about these claims is, they're true. I'm listening. I did give intelligence to Israel from inside the Egyptian government. I sold war plans and other top secret information. I did get paid well for it. And I did warn Israel about the attack in 1973. I was a Mossad agent. So, how did I become one? Well, let's go back a few years. It was the spring of 1969. To my displeasure, I had been called back to Egypt after moving to London a year earlier. The Mossad never recruited me. I went to them. How exactly? Well, my memory is a bit cloudy about that. There's one story where I returned to London. I walked into a phone booth. You know the ones. Those famous red ones. I called the Israeli embassy and told them I had some information to share. Hello, 
Israeli embassy? I tried a few times, but they were hesitant. Hello? Is this the Israeli embassy? Obviously, I was Egyptian and well-connected. They didn't know if they could trust me. I have some information about the Egyptian government that I think may prove useful. So that's one of the stories. Another story is that the reason I went back to London was to see a doctor about my stomach. But it wasn't just any doctor. He had connections. Hello, doctor. I handed him an envelope with my x-rays, as well as a file of secret Egyptian state documents to be delivered to the Israeli embassy. Yeah, here are the uh, x-rays you requested. Three days later, I was working for Mossad. How I became an agent is a bit of a mystery. But that's part of the job description, isn't it? That's how. But why did he become an agent? Let's remember, he had a less than prestigious junior ranking position in that office as an aide to his father-in-law, President Abdel Nasser. There are a few theories as to why he was driven to work for Mossad. One is that he did it to satisfy his ego, to feel like a big shot. Another is that he was just bored in his current position. And a third is that he wanted to live the extravagant lifestyle that had been denied by his father-in-law. Ultimately, the reasons why he became a spy remain a mystery. I shared a treasure trove of documents from the office of the president. Originals, not even copies. I shared records of arms deals and reports from inside meetings between Sadat and the Soviets. And while he was motivated to reach out to the Mossad during his father-in-law's presidency, the lion's share of his espionage occurred while Sadat was in office. Beyond his personal problems with Abdel Nasser, and of course the money, some believe the key factor that drove his intelligence career was his hatred of the Soviet Union, Egypt's ally throughout the Cold War, and Israel's adversary. I shared minutes from confidential meetings between Sadat and Brezhnev regarding the Soviets supplying missiles to Egypt in order to attack Israel. In terms of intelligence, the kind of information I was providing was so far beyond what Mossad was used to. To have a source so high up in their enemy's government, well, it made me their single most valuable agent. Israel based their entire security concept around my intelligence. In fact, they called it the concept. Basically, they believed that Egypt could not and would not attack until they had an arsenal of missiles and long-range bombers, as well as a coalition of Arab allies to fight alongside them. But then came the October War in 1973. I told you earlier, Egypt quickly pushed into the Sinai Peninsula and gained the upper hand, which led to our victory. But Mossad had an agent in our government who tipped them off about the attack. Of course, we know who that agent was. He lives in my mirror. Prior to the war, I had warned Israel about a different surprise attack. Egypt and Syria were going to attempt to take back the Sinai Peninsula in May of 1973. So Israel prepared for war, and they were thrilled with me. What an amazing agent. This intelligence is priceless. But the attack didn't happen, and that hurt my reputation a bit. That made it a little harder for Israeli security to trust my intelligence. Then I told them Egypt was now not planning an attack because President Sadat had not yet received the correct missiles from the Soviets. Incredible intel. Thank you, Angel. Israel could let their guard down. 
but that was not true. Sadat was ready to go to war, even without all the weapons he would have liked. Then I warned Zamir, you know, the head of Mossad. I warned him that Egypt was finally going to attack on October 6th at sunset. Wow, the angel does it again. But that wasn't true. Egypt did attack on October 6th, but it was at 2 p.m., four hours ahead of schedule. Israel was caught by surprise. Egypt had the upper hand, and ultimately Egypt took back Sinai. This was it. The greatest piece of intelligence I ever gave Israel. And what was the result? Defeat. A huge defeat for Israel at the hands of Egypt. But why? Yes, for all of Mossad's praise for Ashraf Marwan's intelligence, he didn't help them win. Maybe he's not the super spy he's made out to be. The term is double agent. Some believe that I was not acting in good faith as an agent for Mossad. The theory is, I only became an agent for Israeli intelligence as part of an operation for Egyptian intelligence. The information I gave Israel was only to mislead them. That's what Major General Eli Zaira of the Israeli military believes. Back in 1973, he argued that Egypt would not attack Israel. But he was wrong, and it cost him his career. But he couldn't just accept the blame. It had to be someone else's fault. It was bad intelligence. And where did that bad intelligence come from? A double agent, according to him. Yes, the angel could have been a devil in disguise. And if someone else believed this too, well, you can only imagine who might come after me. A double agent. This is a far-fetched claim. Especially because even now, Mossad publicly acknowledges that Marwan was their agent. Some members still to this day call him Mossad's greatest ever source of intelligence. From the very beginning, Mossad always had to be suspicious, aware of the possibility that I could have been a double agent. When I joined in 1969, I acted brazenly. They say I even called them from a phone booth in London in broad daylight and offered my services. If I were a double agent, the theory is that all the information I gave them was bad. Even when it was true, it was part of a broad plan to mislead them. That I was only telling Israel what Egypt wanted them to believe. Mossad knew the risk they were taking when he approached them. They don't accept just anyone. They knew he could have been a double agent. When he warned of an attack in May of 1973 that never transpired, was this bad intelligence, or was his warning the reason that the attack never took place? When he warned of the October attacks, yes, he got the time of the attacks wrong, but some say it was otherwise good intelligence that was mishandled. Based on his previous warnings of attacks that never took place, some, including the director of Israel's military intelligence, Major General Eliezer Ira, dismissed his warning. There was plenty of military activity around Israel in the days leading up to the war, as Egypt and Syria were conducting exercises. But all of it was ignored. You see, Israel was convinced there was nothing to worry about because they knew Egypt hadn't been able to get the latest generation of attack weapons from the Soviets. So, 
Israel's military might was greater than Egypt's. Even though Syria was preparing tanks near the Golan Heights, and Egypt was practicing military maneuvers in the Suez Canal, it would turn out the Israeli intelligence community only gave the Prime Minister Golda Meir's office a mere few hours' warning of the attack. So what's the truth about Marwan's intelligence about the October war? Did he give Israel good intelligence that was simply dismissed? Or was it bad intelligence? And was he deliberately spreading disinformation? Was he a double agent? Mossad led an inquiry and published the results. They say it was good intelligence that was mishandled. But maybe that's just what they're saying to cover up their intelligence failures. And maybe I was a double agent. Maybe I went to Mossad and earned their trust. I gave them intelligence they couldn't otherwise dream of. And they were so impressed, they didn't notice that it was costing them a war. Granted, not everyone in Israel believes Mossad. Major General Eli Zaira is one of those who disagrees with their findings. The October War cost him his job and his reputation. He believes I was supplying them with disinformation. He began speaking to journalists about it. And he's the reason my identity was discovered. In Israel, it may be an unpopular opinion to say I was a double agent. But in Egypt, many believe I was. Even Hosni Mubarak, the former president of Egypt, said after my passing that I was not a spy for Israel, and he worked with me for years to feed Israel bad intelligence. He said my activities are not yet ready to be shared with the public. Well, that's part of the mystery, isn't it? When Israel examines its intelligence community, it shares its findings with the public. Egypt does not. And some say Egypt will always back up claims that Marwan was a double agent, whether he was or not, simply because his version of events cast them in a more flattering light. The version of events where he is a traitor? Well, that would be a national embarrassment. It comes down to this. If I gave Israel the intelligence they needed to win the war, then why didn't they win the war? They can talk all they want. Sinai is part of Egypt. And so, after Bregman's book was published in 2002, things became chaotic in my life. I became more and more worried, some say paranoid. My wife noticed I began to double and triple check the locks before going to bed every night. Did you lock the door? Are you sure? I never wanted to be put under the microscope, to have people question my motives, my nationalism, portray me as having this ego. And so, for those final five years of my life, I knew any day could be my last. Don't tell me I'm being paranoid. I spent those years writing my own book about the war. In it, I would share the truth about my career. But sadly, my memoirs were never published. And on June 27, 2007, I was planning to meet Bregman. But I couldn't reach him. Hello. I'm the subject of your book. Please call me. Please call me back. And that is the day I fell to my death and the manuscript of my book went missing. I knew someone was going to kill me, and they did. Yes, it could have been Mossad, or not. But he could have decided to end his own life. He said himself he lived in fear of being murdered. 
The stress of hiding out and constantly looking over his shoulder was getting to him. He was taking antidepressants. His mental health was at its worst. His physical health, too. He had heart problems and mobility issues. He'd lost a lot of weight in the previous two months. No! Please, please, no! 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 It did look like suicide. A fall from the fifth floor. But nobody believes I was suicidal. I was supposed to fly to New York to meet my lawyer that night. I had plans to take my grandchildren on a holiday in a few weeks. Or was I murdered? That feels like the answer. But who? Someone who believes I betrayed their country? But which country? Or perhaps some shady character involved in one of his arms deals? Yes. There are a lot of questions around my final days. There were three anonymous voicemail messages left for me the night before the fall. The surveillance cameras weren't working the day I died. The forensics team in London called it a suicide, but after an inquest three years later, they said there wasn't enough evidence to suggest either suicide or murder. Then what was it, a strong wind? That's the same forensics team that lost the shoes I was wearing that day. And what about the eyewitnesses who claim they saw two Middle Eastern-looking men out on a balcony? Was it my balcony or a neighbor's? All the hard evidence went missing, and all that was left were questions. But my wife Mona still believes it was Mossad. Ashraf Marwan died in London on June the 27th, 2007, at the age of 63. There are as many questions surrounding his death as there are surrounding his life. We know he wanted to be a great success, a man of influence, and he achieved that by any measure. In the end, he was prepared to climb the ladder to be successful, but was not prepared for the fall. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast, produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is series director Chris Kelly, episode co-director Dave Shumka, series producers Lauren Berkovich, and Michael Tanker-Grant. Executive producers, Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Dave Shumka. Ashraf Marwan is played by Zaki Ismail. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing by Dave Shumka and Paul Tedeschini. Sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Associate producer, Nessa Aref. Translated by Abdullah Al Masalam. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer for this series. Fact checking by Joy Lee. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Al Jazeera's head of audio is Graylin Brashear.